In my last talk, I mentioned that nature had always been important to me. I truly consider it to be one of my teachers. And in looking at the Buddhist life, it seemed as if nature had some place there. The Buddha was born under a tree. He was enlightened under a tree. He practiced under a tree. He gave many of his teachings under the trees. And he died under a tree. And when he gave the instructions for the practice we're doing here, he began by saying, here a bhikkhu, one who does this practice, goes to the forest or the root of a tree or to an empty hut and sits down. Nature, as well as being a place of solitude, has much to share with us. As we've all probably all experienced, moments when we see a beautiful scene and we're awed. There's a moment of tranquility, of peace. It may be the beauty of light filtering through the treetops and dancing off glistening dewdrops on the grass. Or seeing mountain peaks lit up by the full moon light with wisps of clouds dancing around the peaks. Or it may be looking into the wild ocean that's frothing and and foaming. What I've found in my own life is when I take these scenes and I take them out of their picture frame and I step into them, it becomes quite a different world. When we sit in the midst of nature, the lessons come strong. There's an honesty to nature. It doesn't camouflage the truth. I know when I was young and I discovered something about the suffering in the world, and yet when I would talk to people, it seemed as if they'd never speak directly of it. I started to feel as if everyone was lying to me. And at these times, I found a refuge in nature to go and sit in it and to look and to see, to see the tree that was, had a gnarled and bent trunk, but to see that it was no, more, no less beautiful than the tree that stood straight and tall. To see a bird with its wing broken and to realize that yes, death was awaiting. To see a gopher come out of her hole and be caught in the state of fear as she looked around. helped me to see the lawfulness of life. Just recently when I was in Burma, I was sitting in a forest monastery and in the back of the property there was a platform where you could go and meditate. It would be just a little bit bigger than the area you needed to sit and you were a couple feet up off the ground. One day as I was sitting there and I was about to get up, I opened my eyes and From underneath the platform I'd been sitting on, a snake emerged. It was a very beautiful snake, and it was quite big. And of course, I went into a state of fear immediately. (laughs) But the snake did not have its eye on me. 
I could see something was happening. And as I looked closer, I saw that there was a dance of life and death happening. Not far away was a frog. The snake was doing this dance that was so beautiful and moving so quickly back and forth and back and forth. And then suddenly, in a split second, it made its move. And the frog was gone with life and death. During another retreat I did, I was out in the country, and every day I was able to sit outside from morning till night. And there was a little grove that I particularly liked to sit in. This grove I shared with many other beings. I would sit on top of this big flat rock, and around me was trees and grass and many other rocks, which was home to many creatures. And it really struck me how much, how often, the state of fear arose for all of us. You know, sitting quietly, creatures would be very close to me before they'd even see me. And then when they did, they'd just be in this total state of panic. And sometimes it happened to me. One time I was sitting on the rock, and there was a chipmunk, and this chipmunk started scolding me, something terrible. And I realized that, well, maybe I'm blocking its access to its home. So I thought, okay, I'll get up and I'll move. And I went and I sat on the grass, and the chipmunk stared at me for a long time. And I sat there for quite a period of time, and the chipmunk never went anywhere near that rock. So in the end, I thought, well, maybe it's not. So I got up and went back and sat on the rock. And as I was sitting there, there was these thickets that were really thick right behind me. And suddenly the chipmunk came flying through that thicket right onto the rock beside me. And, you know, I wasn't, what, what is it? And as I looked over, you know, it's got its little cheeks all full. <laughs> and then it looked and saw me. And it was just a state of terror. <laughs> Let out this shriek and then ran off. But it, it, it just really struck me how much goes on in, the wo- in these beautiful scenes that we so often see, and yet when we sit in them, it's you know, laws of impermanence, that there's constant change happening, and change involves birth, death, and decay. Nature, as beautiful as it may be, contains suffering and it's a condition of life. Nature also has the capacity to hold the suffering. I know there's been innumerable times in my life when I've been in a total state of torment, anguish, sadness, frustration, and I've gone out and sat amongst the trees and the wind and the sun, and how it's helped to ease that pain how it's helped to wash away that feeling of overwhelming unbearableness, how it seems to hold the pain. And it's out of some of these moments that I start to gain insight into how to open to suffering with a compassionate and loving heart.
During this week, the word suffering has come up a lot. And we talk about it because it's the core of the Buddha's teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. It's why we're all here. Before I go any further, I'd like to say a little bit about the word suffering. In Pali, the word that's used is dukkha, often translated as suffering, but dukkha really has a much broader meaning than what we may give to the word suffering. We can readily understand it when we think of the torments of mind and body that are present when we experience unpleasant conditions. But the word dukkha extends beyond this. It also relates to all experience in that it's insubstantial, illusory, or unsatisfactory, that there's no lasting happiness to be found in the changing conditions of life. And we all know this, how we can feel good about our experience in one moment, and then it changes, and it's gone, and we're left grasping at that experience. There's nothing to hold on to, even when happiness does arise momentarily. The dukkha also refers to the state of unbalance due to the ceaseless arising and passing away of experience. And this can be pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, or neutral experience. It's the aspect of experience that is relentlessly changing, continually changing. I mean, we start to see something of this in our practice. We sit here all day, and when you lay down at night, are you still as ready, willing, and able to be with your experience? Or does there come some feeling as if we just want to pull the covers up over our head and go to sleep? We also see it in our daily life, in just what's needed to care for this mind and body. You know, we get up in the morning, we take care of our bodily needs, we bathe it, we clothe it, we feed ourselves, we go off to work to support ourselves so that we can do all this. We come home, we feed it more, we relax, we exercise it, and then we go to bed, and we get up the next day and we do it again and again and again. If we just look into our own life and reflect on all of the suffering that we've encountered, and many of us may not have had really first-hand experience of suffering in the face of crime, violence, wars, starvation, and yet I'm sure we've all had moments of great anguish. And then if we look around the world at the number of people there are, and that many of these people have had first-hand experiences of these states. And then if we look back in time to the number of people that have ever walked this planet, it becomes an immense amount of suffering. Buddha once described how if you put all of the water from the four oceans together, it's nothing in comparison to the 
amount of, of tears that have been shed through suffering. Ajahn Chah in his teaching about suffering said, there are two kinds of suffering, suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you're surely to continue to experience the first. And as I keep saying the word suffering over and over again, I'm reminded of when I first started doing Buddhist practice. And I came, to, came home from my first retreat saying, boy, Buddhists really do have a thing about suffering. <laughs> and then when I went back to a retreat, and every time the word suffering came up, I'd think, oh yeah, here they go again. And then as I continued sitting, I started coming in contact with suffering. And at that point, I thought, oh, maybe it's because of the practice. Maybe it's not the right practice. (laughs) Maybe I should try some other kind of practice. And then slowly, slowly, it dawned on me that what I was experiencing was a magnified version of how I lived my life, how I was run by desire and aversion, and how rarely I saw things clearly, and how this was a state of suffering. And then I became very interested in suffering. And this is the turnaround that happens in relation to suffering. Earlier in our lives, it may have been something that we wanted to to try to avoid. And now, as we see it arising in our practice, it becomes a place of interest. What's going on here? How, How is it that we are suffering? And it's a turn against our cultural conditioning that we're, we live in a society that's very geared towards a denial of suffering. We institutionalize the handicapped or the sick. We put the aging in homes, and we cover over the dying process. As a result, when suffering does happen to us, we think that it's because we've done something wrong. We have this feeling that we're just not good enough. One time I came out of a three-month retreat, and I heard one line from a song that struck me so deeply. And it's a line from a sting song. And I hung my head down. And I just in that moment came in contact with how much pain there is around this feeling of shame, a feeling that we've done something wrong, that we're not good enough. And when we feel that, we try to gloss it over, gloss over it, pretend it's not happening, pretend painful things aren't happening for us. During my first trip to Burma, after a few months of practice, I started to encounter a lot of really difficult mind states. I experienced a lot of anger, jealousy, rage. It was really very strong. And it had shocked me. I'd always thought of myself as being a reasonably kind person. And yet, I was seeing these inner states of tremendous torment. And it was very humbling. And it was a difficult time where the only refuge I found was to hold 
this being that was suffering with compassion. And I realized that these states of mind were no different than the states of mind that fueled wars, fueled crime, fueled violence. And here they were happening inside my own mind. In this way, it helped me to connect with the universality of suffering. No longer could I throw these people of my, out of my heart, but I could begin to open to them, knowing how deep their pain was. In order to open to suffering, we need to have a loving and compassionate heart. And metta, or loving-kindness, becomes the foundation for this. Loving-kindness having the qualities of unconditional love, kindness, friendliness. It's a love that does not discriminate against where it falls. A boundless love that showers on all regardless of likes and dislikes. It's a gentleness of heart rooted in our interconnectedness with all beings. In fact, one of the root meanings of metta is gentle. It's likened to a gentle rain that falls upon the earth that does not choose or select where it falls. And the other root meaning of metta is friend, to understand true friendship. This friendship extends not to others, but just in knowing how to be our own best friend. Metta is a foundation because it helps to soften our hearts, to reach a place of all-inclusiveness, a boundlessness which is non-discriminating. When we feel at home in the world, we have an ease of well-being. We can more easily open to other people's suffering, their joy, their sorrow, and a trusting in the lawfulness of life. When metta is really present, our likes and dislikes do not bind it. We're able to see people on a deeper level, to see them in their totality. And this is where metta differs from sentimentality. When we're sentimental, there's a delusion that's present, where we may, may be seeing only the good in someone and blotting out that which is difficult. But when we see someone in their totality, it embraces both the good and the bad and able to see through to the inherent goodness. And when we see into someone's inherent goodness, it's natural that we would hold them with a place of reverence in our hearts. And our actions then come from a place of inclusion, kindness, and care. Metta is a practice that helps us to reconnect with the world we live in. It helps us to recognize the interdependence of all life, of how much we share with all living beings. I remember some years ago I was sitting a three-month retreat and I had this sudden surge of memories from the past. And they were quite fleeting, and yet they all had a common thread. 
it, there was remembering of many teachers who've been in my life, many seemingly insignificant events in my life, many different situations, and yet what I saw was how they had all impacted my life. Some of these connections had been with people I'd never even spoken with. And that all of these connections had brought me to the present moment, had brought me to the situation where I was able to hear the teachings of the Dharma, to have the opportunity to practice. And what came from that was an immense feeling of gratitude towards all beings that have knowingly or unknowingly supported me on this path. Through the practice of metta, we begin to move beyond our self-constructed boundaries of our conditioning. Boundaries and habitual responses that have come about out of certain conditions in our life. And by bringing awareness to them, we start to dissolve these boundaries that have been limiting us. And in doing so, we allow ourselves to come closer to the truth. And it takes us to a place of wisdom. The truth of how deeply connected we are. So metta is a deep caring or a reverence for all life, without distinction, without exclusion. When we experience metta, it's as if our heart has come into alignment. Each time in metta practice that difficulties arise and we're able to stay aligned with the heart's capacity to love, we're practicing wisdom. We do this not by blotting out all of the pain and torments of mind, but by softening towards them, softening towards that which is difficult. As we become more able to open to all aspects of ourselves, we become naturally more accepting of others. Metta and wisdom have an interesting relationship. Wisdom brings about an understanding of the vulnerability that we're in, that we're constantly faced with change in this life and how there's nothing to hang on to. And with the help of metta, we're able to relax into this, to soften and to accept this. It's as if metta is the container for the emptiness. It gives it cohesion. We begin to see that the emptiness is not something horrible, cold, and dead. Instead, through the power of metta, we taste of the interconnectedness. Lama Suryadas, a Western teacher of Tibetan meditation, says about wisdom and love, if it looks like wisdom, but it's unkind rather than loving, it's not wisdom. If it feels like love, but it's not wise, it's not love. When we're truly in touch with the capacity of the heart to love, 
it opens the gateway to compassion. And compassion is classically described as the quivering or the trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It comes, it happens when we're in contact with suffering and we're able to connect and respond without being overwhelmed by it. It has the quality of fearlessness to it. It's where we're willing and able to act with a courageous heart that steps outside the boundaries of the small separate self. So it pulls us into action when we come in contact with that which is unwholesome, harmful, or damaging to others. And we become motivated by this desire to alleviate suffering. I recently heard this story of whose origins I don't know, other than it came from somebody who worked as a volunteer at the Stanford Hospital. And one day there came in a little girl named Liz. And Liz was about to die from a rare and serious disease unless she got a blood transfusion that could save her life. And the person that could offer that blood transfusion was her five-year-old brother who had had the same disease and had quite miraculously survived it and in doing so had developed antibodies to to the illness. So the doctor explained the situation to the little brother and asked him whether he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. And he only hesitated for one moment before he took a deep breath and said, yes, I'll do it if it will save Liz. And as the transfusion progressed, he lay in the bed next to his sister and he had a smile on his face, as did all of the other people in the room as the color came back into Liz's cheeks. They saw her coming back to life. And then at some point, his face grew pale and his smile faded. And he looked up at the doctor and he asked with his voice trembling, will I start to die right away? Compassion has the possibility to take us to a place where we're much bigger than ourselves. We can act in ways we may never have dreamed possible. This quality of compassion may be what helped to bring us to the retreat. When we heard the cries and the screams of our own hearts and of the world around us, we were in some way motivated or touched to alleviate suffering, to come to understand it. Compassion is not something that we only feel towards others. It's equally essential that we have compassion towards ourselves. If we look at our meditation practice, there are many times that without compassion, we would simply be beating our heads against the walls. Times when we're faced with extreme difficulty, painful states. Sometimes we have the energy to open to these states, and at other times we may need to have an honest recognition that we're at the edge of what we can open to. 
And I, I think in our spiritual practice, we so often do ourselves harm by having this should in our mind, that we should be able to open to this. We should be able to stay with it. And it takes a real softening towards this honesty that we're really at our edge. It takes an honoring of our own process. Emma Chodron, a Western Tibetan nun, in her teachings about compassion says, it is unconditional compassion for ourselves that leads naturally to unconditional compassion for others. If we are willing to stand fully in our own shoes and never give up on ourselves, then we will be able to put ourselves in the shoes of others and never give up on them. True compassion does not come from wanting to help out those less fortunate than ourselves, but from realizing our kinship with all beings. If we're willing to stand fully in our own shoes and never give up on ourselves. And this is what our practice is about, never giving up on ourselves. Some place of inspiration that I found in the teachings of the Buddha is in some of the stories that are told about disciples of the Buddha and what they encountered. You know, there's many stories of people who may have just simply heard the teachings of the Buddha and realized enlightenment. And then there are others whom it didn't happen quite that quickly. One such story is of a monk named Maha Pusadeva. And he was a very diligent practitioner a part of his day was to go on alms round, and he would go from the monastery into the town where he could receive food from the village people. So for 19 years, he would walk from this monastery to town, and each time that he was going in and he discovered that he had lost his mindfulness, he would stop, retrace his steps, and go back to where he'd lost the mindfulness. Many times people from the village would see him and they would, they would think, oh, he must have lost something and maybe come up to inquire. And he, he just stayed steady in his practice that time, at that time and just continued on. And it's said in the 20th year he attained full liberation. But he never gave up in those moments. He just continued on. Some years ago when I heard Sayadaw Upandita say that the road to Nibbana is paved with patience, I found this to be a refuge that I could come to over and over again in my practice when it seemed like nothing was happening. It's having to recognize that there's, until we're fully enlightened, there will be times when the mind gets tangled, caught, when we identify with our experience. Moments when the insight is not strong enough to see through to the essential nature of the awakened mind. And having to to face these moments of limitations with patience, 
understanding that this is the truth of our experience at this time. The quality of forgiveness is also essential to compassion. First, needing to forgive ourselves. If we do not do this, how can we forgive others? Lao Tzu says, Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty but impractical. But to those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, this loftiness has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, and compassion. These three treasures are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. Forgiving ourselves, being compassionate towards ourselves. And I found that the practice itself became so helpful with this. As I kept seeing the force of greed, hatred, and delusion arise in my mind, a funny thing happened. It wasn't that it was like, oh, this is so strong, how will I ever overcome it? But in seeing how strong these forces are, it helped me to be more patient, to realize how much suffering there was, how long I'd been suffering, how long I'd been on this merry-go-round, and that we all are in, in, in this um, same predicament. Forgiveness is how we free ourselves from the past. It allows us to drop the burden of the past and to meet life with a fresh mind. I'm sure we've all done things that we regret from the past, but it doesn't do any good to dwell on it, to carry it, to continue to carry it on our back, to torture ourselves with these memories. It makes much more sense to acknowledge them and to let go of them and to strengthen our commitment to awaken. Hatred is a torment of the mind. When we feed hatred, it only breeds more hatred. We need to break this chain. When we've experienced hatred from another person, instead of holding hatred in our hearts, responding with hatred, it can be helpful to look more closely at the conditions the other person is in, connecting with their pain, their suffering, and softening towards this. It's so painful to keep people out of our hearts. I know a couple years ago I went back to Australia and met someone whom I had lived there a number of years before and had this person who was quite a dear friend to me at that time. But when I came back, I noticed that she wasn't so happy to see me. And I heard from others that she was harboring some resentment towards some of the things I'd done and said to her in the past. 
And at first, I really closed off. It was like, whoa, if you want to be that way. And then it, I just felt the pain of that, how much it hurt. And it, I tried through words to reconcile it, and it didn't work. It didn't seem to be anything I could say. And still, I couldn't hold her out of my heart. So I just found when I was around her, if I could just stay present, if I could just energetically hold my heart open at that time, she began to respond differently to me. She began to respond in a place that was more in connection with where we were now. And forgiveness does not leave us powerless should a person continue to harm us. Rather, it empowers us through the spaciousness, spaciousness it brings by having let go of the past. And we become able to, resp- to respond from a place of wisdom and compassion. And it may mean that we have the wisdom to remove ourselves from difficult situations. It doesn't rely upon the external resolution. Sometimes it's possible, but sometimes it isn't but we don't need to carry that burden of grief, despair, and rage. Finding our own resolution within. Forgiveness can be very difficult. It takes us to the edge of what we're willing to open to and accept. And in this acceptance, we need to be able to allow whatever feelings to arise and embrace them with a loving and compassionate heart. It's not a process that we can force. But it can be helpful to again and again remember the inherent goodness of all beings. And this helps to give us the courage to do so. There's a Vietnamese nun who has worked for many years with Thich Nhat Hanh, Sister Chung Phong, who has as a part of her practice, devoted her life to helping the Vietnamese people. And so every day in her work, she does come in contact with people who have caused suffering, who have caused pain. And it hasn't meant that she only opens to them with a heart of love and kindness, but she's had to work with this. And one of the ways that she does so in meeting a difficult person is to remember that every being is a potential Buddha. Every being is a Buddha of the future. And it's helped her to open in those difficult moments. The near enemy, or that which can mask itself as compassion, is sorrow or grief. And that's when we become broken by the suffering. Sometimes we might see it as a slight contempt while seeing another person as being weak or inferior and thereby feeling sorry for them. But we're not really connecting with the pain. It has an element of aversion. It can also be experienced as a self-righteous anger. 
where there's still a me and a you rather than a suffering, a recognition that this is suffering and what can we do about it. When the near enemy arises, we may find our energy being depleted. We become shattered and unable to hold the immensity of it. And Joseph once said a line which has helped me many, many times when I felt like I'm about to be overwhelmed in the face of suffering. And this line is, only the emptiness can hold it all. It's a letting go of this feeling of needing for ourselves individually to hold on to it. It's like that moment of standing in nature and letting ourselves be held. In opening to suffering, I found both the tendency to feel responsible for other people's suffering and to want to try and take it on myself. And it became a a burden in a way that was of no help to anyone. The far enemy is cruelty. It's where we're so disconnected that we can't stand the suffering and we shut down to it in a way that's harmful to ourselves or others. Sometimes cruelty is very blatant. When in our rage we say things that we know will hurt another. Other times it may be subtle, more like we make a joke that has a dig to it. However it manifests, it's a clear indication that compassion is not at work. And a reminder to look and to see how it is that we've separated from our experience. When we're truly in connection with the world around us, we have no desire to cause harm, but instead live towards a life that is of benefit to all beings. Compassion is a very humbling experience. It's not one where pride easily arises, even to be fearless in the face of suffering. If we're connected to the suffering, we know of its depths, and there's nothing that we can brag about. It's simply that we're called into action, no bones about it. It's a spontaneous action, unnatural. Shantideva, an 8th century Tibetan master, says, Even if I've done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. Compassionate action in our lives may be quite simple. We don't have to go out and stop the wars, save the hungry. For some of us, this may be what's called for. But we can all begin by facing the demons inside us, the demons of fear, hatred, anger, frustration, and boredom. When they arise, embracing them with kindness and care. Our practice can be seen as compassionate action, our willingness to come to understand the nature of suffering. Practice cannot help but ripple out into the rest of our lives. As we learn to live more skillfully, it helps to inspire others to do so. It becomes an expression of our deepest value. It's compassion's function to remember, however great the joy and happiness may be, 
there are still those caught in suffering. It moves us again and again into action in the world. It prevents us from becoming complacent, but continually motivating us to come to a deeper and deeper understanding. Compassion also needs the balance of wisdom, or we lack the skillfulness to know when it's time to act, or when our actions will simply take us into a place of more suffering. It's as if we're aware of the immensity of suffering, but we lack the wisdom to know what to do. We see it so often in the world around us. There may be people who are working for very good causes, And yet, they're often doing it out of the same energy to which they're reacting to. Doing it from a place of anger, rage. But it's really in the silence that we find the wisdom. To have a compassionate heart is to be motivated by the desire for all beings to be free from suffering, to move from this place of intention, not being fearful or overwhelmed in the face of pain and sorrow, but having a continual faith in the capacity of the heart to love. On whatever road we travel, when we're really dedicated to the awakening of our hearts and minds, there are two basic qualities that needed to be cultivated and developed. And these are the qualities of wisdom and compassion. The Buddha likened these two qualities to the wings of a bird and how the bird needs to have these wings strong and in balance in order to fly. And so too must our minds and hearts embrace both of these qualities. And when we think of wisdom and compassion, we probably have very different qualities that come to mind. And yet, through our practice, we begin to see how closely entwined they are. When we're in the space of wisdom, compassion naturally arises. And when we're filled with compassion, it's easy to make wise choices. As our practice unfolds, we see how inseparable they are. Ajahn Buddhadasa says, we are giving back to nature the things that we have falsely appropriated from it. This mind, these feelings, this body, the breath itself, they do not really belong to us. When we see that, instead of feeling deprived of something we thought was ours, we feel a great freedom the liberation that the Buddha promised. Giving it all back to nature. Living with compassion, loving kindness. Letting ourselves be moved by life. I'd like to close with what I found to be one of the most moving expressions of compassion that I've heard. It's by Shantideva. 
and it's called Seven Branch Prayer. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed, for all who need a servant, may I be a slave. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus, for every single thing that lives, in numbers like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So let's sit for a moment. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings. <laughs> 